Thank you, sir. Well, I have a good use for those princess markers with a five-year-old granddaughter. That's just perfect, my goodness. Well, what a wonderful group of people to be with. And uh, I just praise the Lord for the spirit that is evident here, the uh, friendships, uh, the warmth and uh, fellowship. And I'm, I'm sure a lot more goes on that uh, is deep, deep and, uh, and meaningful in one another's lives in your, in your local body here. And I praise the Lord for that. Just so grateful for a church like what I see this weekend that is committed to the Lord, committed to the gospel, uh, committed to scripture, and, uh, and really desiring to, to have body life where you grow together in Christ. It's a wonderful thing. And uh, thank you for the privilege of being a part uh, this, uh, this brief time with you. Well, this morning we are going to look at one other portrait of God that is stunning. I, I just, I don't even have words uh, to express what is in my heart when I think of what we're going to be looking at this morning. It is so important and so glorious, but it's also something that will uh, continue the process that we began on Friday night, and that is this inverse proportionality, right? Uh, we elevate God, and it inevitably shows how humble we are before Him. And that's a good thing. It is such a good thing to recognize how little we are, because then we look to the one who is so big, and it's not us. When we think we're big, we don't look to one who is big, because we have it, and it's, a, it, it's an illusion. It, it, uh, uh, it, it is a lie from the pit of hell that, uh, that we, we tolerate this notion that we have what we need. And as we sang this morning, I mean, goodness, those, some of those songs were so apropos to, uh, to what we're looking at this morning. Uh, we, we, we are in desperate need. God is the great, all-sufficient giver. We are empty and hollow, and he, he is here to fill us up. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a portrait of God's all-sufficiency, His greatness and glory. We have seen grace on display, goodness on display, greatness on display, and now glory on display. The glory of God manifest in the fullness of who God is as God. And really, the, the, the pathway to get to that understanding, I think, uh, one of the clearest ways to get there, to see the fullness of who God is as God, is through the avenue of an attribute of God. It is one attribute, but it's an attribute that really does encompass the fullness of who God is as God. And it's an attribute that is, is really seldom talked about in our circles, uh, in, in our so, sort of evangelical, Bible-believing, conservative, uh, uh, gospel-centered circles. It really is an attribute we hardly ever hear about or talk about. And yet, it is an attribute, as I have come to understand who God is from Scripture, that is at the core, at, at the foundation of a correct understanding of who God is and 
a correct understanding of who we are before him. It is just (laughs) so important to see these things that we're going to be looking at this morning. And so I invite you uh, to, to have minds that are tuned in to the Spirit of God, to the Word of God, and that uh, you will have prayerful attitudes of heart that the Lord would be, be merciful to us sinners, us who are so prone because of sin to make much of me. May we instead, by grace, by the Spirit, by His Word, see that the good in life is found when we make much of God. It is just a a glorious thing to come to this realization. Uh, We we live in a culture that is marked by self-esteem. Honestly, try to find one hint of encouragement towards self-esteem in the Bible. A correct self-understanding? Yes. A correct self-view? Yes. A correct self-assessment? Yes. But self-esteem? No. You, you don't find it. What you find from page 1 to page 852, whatever it is in the end of your Bible, what you find through the whole of the Bible is not self-esteem, but God-esteem. God-esteem. He's the one worthy of esteem. And when we see that and realize through Christ we have been united to this one who has everything then we realize our littleness is filled with His fullness that comes from Him. And therefore, who gets the glory? He does. For indeed, He is the Great One. He is the infinitely full One. He is glorious in infinite proportions. So, this morning, through the avenue of the attribute of God's self-sufficiency we're going to put on display the glory of God. Let's just pray for a moment before we dive into this. Father, we do pray that you would grant us right now what we desperately need, and that is a visitation from your Spirit upon our lives, in our minds and hearts, that your Spirit would be released to open our eyes to see glorious truths about you that we would, in fact, recognize how good it is to be humbled, how good it is to feel small, how good it is to feel empty, because we have come to see how full and rich and infinitely great you are, and you have given yourself to us. Oh my, Lord God, help us to see the glory of this, the beauty of it, the strength and power of it, and may it affect our lives forevermore. Do this good work, we pray, in the name of Christ, the one who has made possible all that we will be thinking about together. In his name we pray, amen. All right, well, let's start with a definition first of divine self-sufficiency so we are on the same page in thinking about what this attribute is. And then basically, the sermon is very simple. I'll then take you to some passages of Scripture that uh, begin to unpack for us the Bible's teaching of God's self-sufficiency. And when we've done that, then it's basically implications and applications, which, which are sobering and, and profound 
implications and applications. So it's very simple. Definition, passages, and then uh, move, moving on to these, these implications and applications. So first of all, the, a definition of God's self-sufficiency. You have it there on your, on your handout. To say that God is self-sufficient is to say that God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. Now, by quality, what I have in mind there is any, er, anything and everything that is qualitatively good. Uh, what the Puritans used to refer to as the perfections of God. What are sometimes referred to as the attributes of God. But whatever is qualitatively good is God's. Period. Whatever is qualitatively good is God's. So you, you name it. You, you name the quality. Whether it's wisdom or knowledge or, or power or righteousness or holiness or goodness or mercy. It is God's. There is nothing that is qualitatively good that is not God's. Because God alone exists eternally and he has within himself everything that is qualitatively good. So, God possesses everything qualitatively good. Now look at some of the, the uh, qualifications within the definition. God possesses within himself these qualitatively good things. Within himself. But notice the definition says he possesses these within himself intrinsically. And you might wonder, do you have to say that? Once you've said that he possesses these qualities within himself... Do you have also then to say that he possesses those intrinsically? Isn't that redundant? And the answer is, no, it's not redundant. You do have to say this because. Anybody think of why? Because you can possess things within yourself that are not intrinsic to you. You take them in from outside, right? So they are within you, but they are extrinsic to you. The easiest example I can give is if all of us would right now take a deep breath. Ready? Breathe in. Ah, feels good, doesn't it? Yeah? Okay, well that breath is within you. But that breath is not intrinsic to you. You have to live in an environment where there is air to breathe or you don't live. It's that simple. You need constantly <coughs> something from without to bring in for your very life. Well, here's the point with God. There is nothing that he needs outside of himself. He has everything that he needs within himself. Everything that is qualitatively good is within God intrinsically. It is God's by his very nature as God. He cannot receive something from without because there is nothing without God that could be brought into God. He has everything that is qualitatively good within himself intrinsically by his very nature as God. And the definition says he not only possesses these within himself intrinsically, but eternally. So there never was a time in eternity past, never will be a time in eternity future. Is not the case now that he ever lacks any of these qualities. They are always fully his for eternity. And then finally, the last part of the definition, he possesses these within himself intrinsically and eternally and in infinite measure. 
As I've mentioned before, the term infinite is a negative term, like atheist, right? <clears throat> That's sort of an idea. Infinite simply means not finite, which then raises the question, what does it mean to be finite? Well, to be finite is to be bounded, restricted, limited. So God possesses every quality that there is, no exception. Anything and everything that is qualitatively good is within God. It is His own properties, His own by very nature. He possesses those within Himself intrinsically and eternally and without boundary, without measure, without restriction or limitation. What an amazing God, God is. Amen? Amen. Now, does the Bible teach the self-sufficiency of God? Well, indeed, it does. Let me take you, you know, we, we can't spend a lot of time on each of these, but the three passages that unpack for us the Bible's teaching, some of the Bible's teaching on the self-sufficiency of God, beginning in Isaiah 40. Here we are back in Isaiah again. Uh, boy, what an amazing book this is on, de on dis putting on display who God is. Beginning at verse 12 of Isaiah 40, the prophet Isaiah, God actually through the prophet Isaiah, begins to ask some rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are questions whose answers are so obvious you don't have to give the answer, right? Is the Pope Catholic? Well, until the present Pope, I think the answer has always been yes. But any, in any case, it's hard to tell right at the moment. But uh, yeah, of course, you, you don't have to answer that question. You know the answer to it. So here are rhetorical questions that God gives. Look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12 of Isaiah 40. Who do you know, asks the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who do you know who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Now, every one of those images in verse 12 is meant to convey something of the magnitude of the immensity, the, 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 the greatness and the power of God. I mean, think of that very first image that's there. Who has measured, who do you know who has measured the waters of the world, the Atlantic Ocean? The Pacific Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea that would have been familiar to Isaiah. Who do you know who can cup the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? What an amazing image. You know, I have a very, a very precious memory about a time with our two girls when they were young. Uh, we were vacationing at Cannon Beach, Oregon. If you've never been there, put it on your uh, your, your wish list of a place to visit. It is stunningly beautiful. So Cannon Beach, Oregon, <clears throat> we had a little cottage for a couple days uh, that was rented there right on the beach. And uh, I had this idea in mind when we had devotions that morning. I read through Isaiah 40 and made mention of this verse as we were reading through it with our family. And so when devotions were over, I said to my two girls, Bethany was about seven and Rachel was four, if I remember right. And I said to my two girls, hey, girls, do you want to do an experiment with Daddy down at the beach? Oh, yes. They're excited. So they grabbed their towel, and uh, we head on down to the beach. And when we got down there, I said, okay, now here's what we're going to do. I want you to stand right here along the shoreline where the waves are coming in, and I'm going to go out into that Pacific Ocean. 
And uh, I am going to lean down and scoop up all the water I can of that Pacific Ocean in the hollow of my two hands. And I want you to watch really carefully to see how far the level of the ocean dips when I do that. Okay, Daddy, they're excited. They're watching. So I go, I'll go, I go out there and I lean down and scoop up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. Oh, come on. Look again. Look carefully. So I did it again. Scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came back, got down on my knees, eye level with my girls, and I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really significant about the difference between how big we are and how big God is. Do you remember that verse we read this morning about how God can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Yeah, we remember that. So now think of it. I'm your dad. I go out and scoop up all the water I can of that Pacific Ocean in the hollow of my two hands, and you cannot tell anything has changed. But I said, look at that ocean. Consider how big it is. Imagine a hand, if it came down and scooped up water, that ocean bed would be dry. That's how big God is. Wow, what an image that conveys the immensity of God. Here's the next one in verse 12. Who do you know has marked off the heavens by the span? The span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and your little finger. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? Goodness, just think of a few things we know. Light travels at 186,000 miles per hour. No, second Incredible, 186,000 miles per second. At that speed, light leaving the sun takes about seven and a half minutes to get to the earth. The next closest star in the Milky Way galaxy to us, this is our next door neighbor, is four and a half light years away. Seven and a half minutes, four and a half years, that's our next door neighbor in the Milky Way galaxy. I mean, the, the Milky Way galaxy has 100 million stars, or, or more than that. I, but, you know, they don't know for sure, but, but this vast number of stars, and it is one star, one galaxy, among multiple hundreds of millions of galaxies in the universe, spread out across this universe in a scope we can't even fathom. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span what an amazing image. Or who can calculate the dust of the earth by the measure and weigh the mountains in a balance or the hills in a pair of scales? I love that last image in particular. Who, who do you know who can hold the scales upon which you weigh the mountains? Put the Rockies over here. Put the Himalayas over here. Hold the scales that weigh the mountains. Wow. The power of God, the immensity of God, the greatness of God is put on display by these images in verse 12. Now, verses 13 and 14, the rhetorical questions continue, but the, 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 there's a shift in terms of the emphasis now to the knowledge and wisdom of God. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? What's the answer to those rhetorical questions? Who has ever been God's advisor? Answer, no one. God needs no advisors. 
In fact, God wants no advisors. Why? Because he knows everything perfectly. He cannot be told something he doesn't know. He cannot be given some perspective that otherwise he would lack. He has absolutely perfect knowledge that is infinitely full. You know, God would honestly do us all a big favor if he would help us understand of the amount of knowledge that there is, all of which he has, how much of that knowledge we have. I have a feeling that images like a grain of sand on the seashore are probably about the sort of thing that we would end up with. A grain of sand on the seashore. That's probably about (coughs) the amount of knowledge we have versus what God has. Then, wouldn't it be also helpful not only to know how much knowledge we have versus God, an incredible difference, but then of what we do claim to know, how much of that is actual knowledge as opposed to misunderstanding that we think is knowledge. Indeed, my, my, it, it is so humbling to realize God knows everything. This is why, my friends, it is totally inappropriate for us in our prayers to come before God and instruct Him on what He needs to understand in order to do what obviously is the right thing to do. We do not have a position before God where we tell Him what to do. We come as children asking, but as children ask their parents, you know how this works, parents know best. And so honestly, we, and the, the gulf here is huge, you know, in comparison to human children and human parents. And so we, we have to come before God with a recognition that while we bring our, our request to Him with earnestness and, and deep desire, we recognize He knows everything perfectly. So if Jesus prayed, not my will but yours be done, don't you think that's appropriate for the rest of us? Indeed, why, why not my will but yours? Because we know his will is perfect. I might be really mistaken on what is best. Do we really want him to do what I think is best when he knows it's not? So indeed, we come with humility before him, recognize boldness but humility. And those two go together in prayer. So may God help us to see this. Okay, well, in these verses, 12, 13, and 14, we see then put on display the the, the power of God, the immensity of God, the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Now, verse 15, we begin to see implications for us, and they are very humbling, very humbling. Look with me, verse 15. Behold, the nations, stop right there, nations, This is a way of telling us the collective totality of humanity taken together. All of us human beings in all of the nations of the world, all of our abilities, our knowledge, our wisdom, our power, our prowess, all of who we are and what we have, what are we before God? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Now look at those images. They both convey basically the same idea, don't they? A drop from a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales are are examples of what is what? Small, insignificant, tiny, 
inconsequential. I mean, imagine the scene at the deli counter where the woman in front of you is ordering a pound of sliced turkey. And just before the guy presses the button to to print out the the price sticker, uh, she screams and says, wait a minute. And he's startled. Well, what's the matter, ma'am? And and, uh, she says, you're going to overcharge me. Oh, is there a problem? There's a speck of dust on that scale. I mean, if you were in line, you would chuckle, wouldn't you? I mean, what is this woman worried about? I mean, a speck of dust doesn't weigh in. Isn't that the point of the image? So the nations are before God as a drop from a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, at least we're a drop. You know, at least we're a speck, you know, we're something there. Well, keep reading, my friends. It gets worse, not better. Verse 15, behold, he lifts up islands like fine dust. The image there is God plays with the islands of the, uh, that, that are out scattered across the world like a little kid plays with sand running through his fingers. The islands uh, are like fine dust. Even Lebanon, that area to the north of Israel with all of its forests. Uh, Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations, verse 17, here we are back again, the collective totality of humanity taken together. What are we before God? Well, all the nations are as nothing before him. Well, it looks like we've been demoted, my friends. We've gone from drop and speck to nothing. I mean, it can't get worse than that, can it? It does. Keep reading. Verse 17, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing. The Hebrew here is less than zero. I don't know how you do that. Less than nothing and meaningless. Now, it is really important to understand what this means and what it does not mean. Let's let's start with what it does not mean. It does not mean when God says the nations before me are less than nothing and meaningless, it does not mean I don't care about those nations. They mean nothing to me. How do we know that cannot be the understanding conveyed here? Well, you you might think John 3.16, right? God so loved the nations, the world that he gave his only son, right? And you'd you'd you would be correct to think that way. But even in Isaiah 40, do you remember how Isaiah 40 ends? What, 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 is, what is the main point that God wants to get across? Why, why does he want his people to understand how great he is, how powerful he is, how mighty and wise and knowledgeable he is? You remember why he wants them to get this? Look, end of the chapter, verse 28. <clears throat> Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, The creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired like we do. His understanding is inscrutable unlike ours. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. 
Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who, the, who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. Question, why does God want his people to get it? To understand how great he is, how mighty he is, how knowledgeable he is, how wise he is. Why does he want them to get this? Because he knows they, unlike him, become tired. They, unlike him, don't have knowledge they need. They, unlike him, are weak and feeble. He wants them to know how great he is so they will draw upon him, wait upon him for what he has that they lack. Right? So... It's not the case in verse 17, back to verse 17, that when God says, the nations before me are less than nothing and meaningless, it does not mean I don't care about them. Oh my, he cares. So what does it mean that the nations are before me as less than nothing and meaningless? Well, here it is, my friends, and it is sobering. It means this. What can, when you consider the, the infinite fullness of God, His power and His majesty and His knowledge and His wisdom, that the fullness of God as God. Here's the question. What can the nations with their power, their knowledge, their wisdom, what can they add to the infinite fullness that is God's? And the answer is they can add nothing Absolutely nothing because God has everything. He is self-sufficient. God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. Therefore, he cannot be added to. We cannot contribute something to God that he otherwise would lack. Impossible. He has it all. Indeed. Okay, let's look at another passage on self-sufficiency. Psalm 50, just back to the left a tiny bit in your Bibles. Psalm 50. <coughs> in this passage, Israel is on trial. And God is functioning actually in three different capacities here. He is functioning as judge who is conducting the trial. He's also functioning as the chief prosecuting attorney, prosecuting the case against them, and he is also chief witness. So he's all three of these wrapped up into one as he brings this case against Israel. And we're just going to focus on one part of this. So, so look with me at verse 5, and, and we'll go from there for a bit. Verse 5, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So obviously, he has in reference his own people, Israel, his covenant people. Verse 6, And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Okay, so here is God as judge bringing the case against Israel. Verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Stop. Think. This is amazing. 
I mean, the first thing that God says is, you're obeying the law. You're carrying out what you're supposed to do. You're bringing sacrifices. I mean, this is amazing because there were many times in Israel's history when they did not carry out the, the law of God. They were not uh, practicing the, the, uh, the sacrifices. But here is a time when they are. You would think these are the good days, you know? These are the days of their obedience. So what is the problem? Ah, keep reading. Verse 8. Uh, verse 9, I'm sorry. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, don't miss the if there, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Verse 13, here's the key verse. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Okay, stop there. Now here we understand, verse 13 is the key verse in interpreting this passage because it tips us off that what is happening in Israel, the way they are thinking of worship of God is the way the ancient Near Eastern cultures that surrounded Israel think of worship of their gods. They had adopted the same theology of worship that the, the pagan nations around them utilized. Well, what, what uh, theology of worship was that? Well, it's very simple. The gods of those nations out there were needy. They, they, they needed food to eat. They needed drink. And, and they're, you know, they would get hungry. And goodness, when the gods were hungry, they were not happy. You know? and, and so bad things would happen to the people when the gods were hungry. So what did the people do? They brought food. They, they, they brought sacrifices to their gods so that those gods would eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of male goats. Their bellies would be filled. Their thirst would be quenched. Because the people provided for the gods, the gods would be happy, and then the gods would bring good to the people. So we take care of God, He takes care of us. That's how it works in the ancient Near Eastern theology of worship. We take care of God, He takes care of us. And God says, I will have none of that understanding because I don't need your sacrifices. If I were hungry, if I were, I'm not, I never am. But if I were, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Do you really think when you bring these sacrifices, I'm eating the flesh of bulls and drinking the blood of male goats? Oh, you misunderstand entirely who I am before you. I do not need you or your sacrifices. Do you understand this? Who am I before you? Keep reading. Verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you and you will honor me. You see in those verses the key to the, the proper understanding of a relationship with God and His people? When you offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, what does that imply about the God-human relationship? If we thank God, who has been the giver? He has. Who has been the receiver? We have, right? So the, the dependence relationship between God and the world runs one way. 
We depend upon God for everything. We'll see in the next passage in just a moment in Acts 17. We depend upon God for life and breath and all things. We depend upon God for absolutely everything. Breath this moment is gift, 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 gift from God. So we depend upon God absolutely. How much does he depend upon us? Not at all. So here, here, here is who God is. Verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. Notice I don't call upon you in my day of trouble because I don't have a day of trouble and I don't need you to help me out, but you're the ones who are in the day of trouble. You call upon me and I will rescue you and you will honor me. Now that honor helps us put this in perspective. Can you see that if it is the case that God depends upon us and we give to God what he lacks, then who should receive the honor? We should, right? We're helping out poor God. Poor God who needs our assistance. So, goodness, we deserve the glory then in this. Well, I will not share my glory with another, the Lord declares. Isaiah 42, 8 as one sample of that statement. No, so God is glorified when we acknowledge we need Him. We come to Him. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you. God is the rescuer, not the rescuee. We're those needing to be rescued. So indeed, God is self-sufficient. Also confirmed in verse 23 at the end of the, uh, end of the, uh, the psalm, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Do you see it again? You honor God as you thank him for what he has provided in your need. That is honoring to him. I mean, just, just a, a comment here, my friends. I honestly believe with all of my heart that if Christian people cultivated a conscious practice of thanksgiving, their walk with the Lord, their relationship with him would flourish in ways you have never known. Because what thankfulness indicates is awareness of my need and God's gracious provision. So cultivate thanksgiving to the honor of God and enter into increasing joy of your walk with Him day by day. Just a word uh, from, from this text that I think is appropriate for us to take to heart. Okay, one more, one more passage, quickly. Acts 17 in the New Testament Without any question, the, the, the sort of the primary text, if you look at a theology textbook and, and look at the doctrine of self-sufficiency, this text will be listed even if no other one is. This is kind of the, the primary text on the self-sufficiency of God we find in the Bible, although there are many other passages. But nonetheless, this one is so straightforward. Uh, Paul, Paul is in Athens at this point. You can see that at verse 16. And uh, he has observed while he is in Athens, he's waiting for people to join him, by the way, and he's observed that the city is just full of idols. Uh, he, he walks around and he sees altars and shrines and inscriptions to every known deity. And what just really provokes him is the fact that there is no representation, no understanding of who the true God is. I mean, the irony of this is thick. 
They pride themselves in knowing about every deity, but the one deity they don't know about happens to be the one and only true and living God. I mean, it's very much like the culture we live in, this pluralism of our day, and every other God out there. I mean, visit a, a, a place like Portland, Oregon, or... A, or Austin, Texas, or, you know, these places that are really big on pluralism. <coughs> but, uh, but boy, the, the one God they will have nothing to do with is the one true and living God. So, indeed, this is what Paul faced in Athens. And he was invited, as he began speaking to them of who this God is, he was invited to go to the Areopagus and, and to proclaim there among the philosophers who this God is. So, pick up with me now at verse 22. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. No kidding. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. I mean, that's how serious they were about having every God represented. That in case they missed one, they had an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So Paul uses that as a bridge now to speak of who God truly is. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this God I proclaim to you. Okay, look at verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. You see self-sufficiency there? It's tucked right in the middle, right? The, the beginning of verse 25. He isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now, he supports that understanding of God as self-sufficient. He has everything within himself. He doesn't need anything that is given to him because he has everything within himself. He, he supports that with three uh, the theological buttresses, as it were. The first one comes in uh, the beginning of verse 24, the doctrine of creation. The God who made the world and all things in it. Now, here's my question to you. You've got to think with me. It's worth it, though. This is worth it. Think, think hard with me. What is the logical connection between God as creator and God as self-sufficient? God as creator and God as self-sufficient. Do you see it? Does it come to mind? Well, what, what do we mean when we talk about God as creator? Well, what, what we mean is that he, God alone, existed as God. The world had not existed yet until God chose to bring into existence a world out of nothing. The Latin phrase often used by theologians is creatio ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. He brought into existence a world that did not exist. Now, how, do, how does that support the self-sufficiency of God? Well, if he exists as God without a world, then obviously he doesn't need the world to be who he is as God. So, so the world doesn't add anything to God. The world rather is a reflection of God. You see it? The world in all that it is, this is why the heavens declare the glory, not of the heavens, but the heavens declare the glory of God because the heavens and the earth and everything that God made is a, a physical, visible portrayal of invisible characteristics of God. His power now visibly, physically manifest. His wisdom physically, visibly manifest. His beauty physically, visibly manifest. Do you see it? So the heavens do, do, not, do not add anything to God. The heavens are, are a reflection 
of God. So indeed, God exists as God, thank you, without a universe. He doesn't need the universe that he made. Secondly, not only did he create the world, but he rules it. So the, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Now how does, how does that support self-sufficiency? Well, simply because if God is Lord of heaven and earth, then, then that means all that he has made is his. And of course, this is just good biblical theology. To create is to own, and to own is to have rightful rulership over. So answer these questions for me. How much did God create? Everything. How much does he own? Everything. How much does he have rightful rulership over? Everything. And that means everything you and I have, by the way. Remember, we are not owners of anything before God. We are in terms of human relationships. There is such a thing as property rights and, and human ownership at the human level. But before God, we don't own a cotton-picking thing. My dad's from Georgia, so I can say that. He, he, he grew up on a cotton farm. <coughs> we, we don't own a cotton-picking thing. We, we don't own anything. What, what is the biblical word that relates to what we have as human beings? Owner? No. Steward. Steward is granted something that is not his or hers and, and given use of it and, 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 and the responsibility to care for it and to use it in the right kinds of ways. That's what we are before God, not owner of anything, right? So, God, well, if God owns it all, then that means he is never in a position where he has to get some help out there to, to get something that is not his because all... All that there is, is his already. He never has to, to put it in a very simple way, he never has to borrow a cup of sugar from a neighbor or borrow his neighbor's lawnmower. You know, I mean, you just don't have to do that because he has it all. Okay, third, not only is he creator and Lord, but then in the, at the end of verse 25, he is the giver of every good gift. He isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Notice the two uses of all, and that matches the Greek, by the way. The two uses of all there, he gives to all people all things. Well, if you, if you give all things to all people, then what does that indicate you have antecedently, previously? You must have all things to give all things to all people. So it implies, does it not? It entails, actually. It entails God's self-sufficiency. He has it all. God does possess within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. He indeed is exclusively, but entirely, self-sufficient. Amazing God that God is. All right. So we've seen some passages that, that unpack for us the, the teaching of Scripture uh, on the self-sufficiency of God. Now we're going to spend the rest of our time on this, uh, this morning on implications. And oh my, they are so important. First of all, our implications and applications that relate to God Himself, that is understanding who God is 
in, in a way that, uh, that we, we need to see as his creatures, as those who are made by him. So under Roman numeral 3, capital letter A, let me just read for you this list of items that's there. You can follow along and read as well. I, I probably will make very little comment. I just want to register these so we hear them and you can think about them more uh, at another point. Capital letter A, because God is infinitely and eternally full, rich, joyous, satisfied, because God is fully sufficient, self-sufficient, consider these implications. Number one, God does not need the glorious creation that he has made, either in whole or in any part, including his creation of human beings. As humbling as it is true, God does not need us. Now, my friends, when I first learned this, I learned this from A.W. Tozer. My freshman year of college, I have had the privilege of thinking these thoughts since I was 19 years old. I'm now 60. And I can tell you these thoughts are as powerful, more powerful in my life today and they have been for the entirety of my adult life as they were when I learned them. Because I go back to this constantly that I am not here because God needs me, which is just the opposite of what I learned in my Baptist church. I, I can remember the fifth grade boys Sunday school class. You know, concrete block walls, basement room, you can picture it, can't you? Uh, Trinity Baptist Church, Spokane, Washington. Uh, you know, in many ways, I mean, what I'm going to tell you is not a good thing, but in many ways that was a, a good church. I, I learned the gospel. I became a Christian. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for many things about that church, but there were, there were some things I now know, looking back, that were absolutely horrid, theologically. Sad to say, but it's true. Well, one of them was this. I remember the fifth grade boys' Sunday school class. Uh, spit wads, uh, rubber bands, paper clips, you know, you can just picture it, yeah. <clears throat> and I, I, I was a deacon's kid. I was, uh, I was the ringleader, you know, and so anyway. <laughs> but uh, all of a sudden, a friend of mine in the class asked the teacher a question that I had had for many, many years. I was very interested in. And... Uh, and so I perked up and listened. I wanted to know the answer to this question. He asked, he asked the teacher, why are we here? Why did God make us? And here, here's what she said just instantly. I mean, obviously, it was uh, something she had thought about before, and she, she, knew, she knew the right answer. Here it is. Oh, well, the reason we're here is, be, is because before God made us, he was all by himself, and he was lonely. He had no one to talk to no one to have fellowship with, and there was this emptiness in his heart. And he thought to himself, oh, I need a friend. I, I, I need someone that I can be with, someone that I can have fellowship with. And so that's why he made us, is to fill up that void in his life and, and to be friends of God. And I thought to myself at the time, wow, what a wonderful reason for being, to, to, to help out poor God. You know, he, he's lonely. He needs a friend. I'll be his friend. You know, I'll, I'll help him out. And, and, and then, you know, other things in, our, in that same church fit that model of poor God. Here, here's one prime example. The regular appeals for missions. 
missionary calls. You could just see on the banner in the background, poor God. Not really, but you know, that's, that, that, was, that was implicitly there. Because here's how the, the, how the appeals went. God wants to reach these people, whatever group it was out there in, in uh, sub-Sahara Africa or whatever. You know, God wants to reach those people out there, but he can't do it without you. Will you go? You know, so, you know, poor God, he's, you could almost see him wringing his hands. Oh, he's not going to be able to do it unless I help him. And, you know, with that mindset, if I'm the one who, you know, steps up to the plate and helps out poor God, well, then who ought to get the credit? You bet I do. I mean, because I didn't have to do this, and I volunteered to do it, and I'm, I'm serving the Lord. Oh, it, it did not even strike me uh, until many years later how really tricky is the concept of serving the Lord. More on this in a moment. But indeed, this is what I grew up with. So, this first point just hit me like a ton of bricks at the time. As humbling as it is true, God does not need us. Second point, God does not need anything from us. He needs no help, no gifts, no service, no fellowship, Though he commands our obedience and calls us to service, he needs nothing that we are or have to offer. Boy, humbling, is it not? Third, God cannot receive anything from us that is not previously, rightfully, and entirely his and his alone. In fact, this is so much the case that God is both dishonored and offended when we approach him as if he needs what we have to bring him, as if we can give him something that he lacks, Psalm 50. Number four, every good and perfect gift necessarily is from him and him alone. Acts 17.25, James 1.17. Imagine this. There is no true thought, no good work, no discerning word, no talent, no ability, no gifting that is not from him. For every quality that exists in creation and in your lives and mine is there at all and is there to the scope and extent that it is only because God in his grace and kindness has granted this to us. We owe him everything for all that we have and all that we enjoy. Therefore, God alone is worthy of all honor, glory, praise, adoration, love, devotion, obedience, and worship. You see why it is God alone deserves honor. Because he alone possesses everything that is in the category of honorable, worthy of worship, adoration. He has it. If we have some reflection of it in finite measure, it's only because God in his mercy has granted to us a share in the infinite fullness that is his. The infinite fullness is his, not ours. The finite bit <laughs> of the representation of it is in us, but by his gift. So indeed, God deserves all of the glory. Okay, key questions. <coughs> now under cap letter B. So why are we here? Back to the fifth grade boys Sunday school class, right? Why are we here? What is our purpose? Well, if the answer is not 
that God was lonely and needed fellowship. By the way, I didn't mention this before. Why is the notion that before God created us, he was lonely, he had no one to talk to, no one to have fellowship with, why is that theologically a wrong way of thinking? The doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, how important the doctrine of the Trinity is to realize that God is a social unity, that, that there is a social relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit that eternally uh, goes on with, with love and, uh, and fellowship and intimacy of relationship among the three persons of the Trinity that is so far beyond anything that we could experience at human levels or that God could have with us finite creatures that it makes laughable the notion that God was lonely before he created the world. Oh no, he is infinitely satisfied in himself. He did not need to create the world or us. So why are we here? What is our purpose? Well, it's, it's not because he needed us, not because he needed fellowship. Psalm 50, he's offended and dishonored to think so. Rather, particularly in relation to his people, the answer is this. My friends, are you ready to just, I don't know, I don't know what to say, worship? Are, are you ready to be stunned? This is truly stunning. The answer is this. Though he doesn't need us, he loves us. Now stop right there. That in itself is just astonishing, is it not? Because in our relationships at the human level, we, we, we are not self-sufficient. We are needy. And hence, our love for others inevitably involves significant elements of how the other that we love might meet our needs. Every marriage is this way. There's not, not a partner out there in the marriage that is self-sufficient. But in this relationship, God is self-sufficient. He needs nothing from us. So the, the reason for creating us cannot be to get something from us that He doesn't have. He has it all. He doesn't need it from us. So the fact that He loves us, though He does not need us, is amazing, astonishing. Okay, now keep, keep reading with me now. Though He doesn't need us, He loves us, and His purpose in creating and redeeming us is not that we might fill up some lack in Him, but here it is, that He might fill us up with Himself. This is why we are here. He made us empty to be filled with His fullness, thirsty to drink of the water of life, weak to receive His strength, foolish to be instructed and corrected by His wisdom. In His love, He longs to give. Boy, generous King. Isn't that the case? Generous king. In his love, he longs to give, to share the bounty. He wants us to experience in finite measure the fullness of joy and blessing that he knows infinitely, all to redound to the praise and the glory of his name, the giver and provider of all the good that we enjoy. C.S. Lewis, 
in his book, The Problem of Pain. His chapter in that book on divine goodness. Oh, it is so profound. Read it sometime. Problem of Pain, his chapter on divine goodness. (coughs) In that chapter, in that book, he says this, that God's love is not like ours, helping another while also needing to be helped. Rather, God's love is bottomlessly selfless. By very definition, it has everything to give and nothing to receive. So here it is, my friends. Why are we here? What is the purpose of our existence? The purpose is to be loved by God. To be filled up with God. To experience in finite measure these infinitely glorious, joyful happy realities that are God's that he knows in his infinite fullness. And he says, I want you to be a participant in the joy that I know as God as you share in my qualities. I want you to be holy as I am holy. I want you to be wise with my wisdom. I I want my truth to enter your minds and fill your minds with what is true that will set you free. I want my love to be your love. I I want my mercy to be your mercy. I I want my character to be re-represented, re-presented in you in finite measure. So we are not here to give to God what He lacks. We are here to receive from God what He has to give to us. He doesn't need anything we have to give Him. We need everything He has to give to us. So my friends, what an amazing thing. Well, okay then, second, why does God demand our obedience? I mean, this is a good question. I mean, if He doesn't need anything that we have, anything that we do, you know, why in the world is He so insistent then that we obey Him? I mean, who cares if we obey him or not? God isn't affected by this in himself. So why does he demand our obedience? Here it is. Because he loves us and wants our best, and because he knows that our only true joy is found when we follow in his way, he demands, yes, demands. Uh, Maybe you don't like that word. Well, get used to it. This is God who doesn't give 10 suggestions. He he, he doesn't negotiate terms. He is God. He knows best. Period. So he says, follow in my ways. Why? Because he's a tyrant? No, he's a lover. He's a lover who loves you so much. Oh, I'm, I'm taking my own words here. All right. I'll go, back to, I'll go back to the text. He demands that we... Now let me start again. Because He loves us and wants our best. Because He knows that our only true joy is found when we follow in His ways. He demands that we obey Him. His commandments lead to life. That is, he demands, His demands are given as a lover. C.S. Lewis, again, same, play, same chapter. And the goodness of God says concerning the commandments of God, those divine commands which sound to our natural ears most like those of a despot and least like those of a lover, in fact, marshal us where we should want to go if we knew what we wanted. As he says in his sermon, 
the weight of glory. We are far too easily satisfied. God calls us to life, and this is found only in obedience to the will and the ways of God. So why, why, why does he demand our obedience? Because he loves us so much. And he knows, he knows. Do you know he knows? Do you believe that? Do you believe he really does know the pathway to true human fulfillment? And if we, if we think we know better, we're deceived. We, 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 are, we have bought the lie from the pit of hell. And it will kill us in the end. If you go the route of thinking you know better, it will always lead to destruction. God's ways always lead to life. Anything else always leads to destruction. And God knows it. So he says, in my love, follow me. Obey my commands. Be obedient to everything I call you to be and enter into life. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. These things that I have taught you, Jesus said, I have taught you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. In the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So indeed, the God of all true joy is calling us into joy, but he knows there's only one path to get there. And it's the path of obeying his commandments. Can you see that in God's design, the duty to follow God and delight in experiencing the best in life are wed. What God has joined together, let no man or woman separate. Duty delight are together. So indeed, this is God who loves you so much. He will not allow you to tolerate the notion that goodness can be found anywhere else but in Him. Last point. Number three, why does God enlist our service? Here's that tricky concept that I mentioned earlier. Why does he enlist? If he doesn't need anything we do, he, he does not need me here this weekend. I feel that every time I speak. I mean, this is so ingrained in me. 19 years old, 60. And I have thought about this constantly. All those years. It is ingrained in me. Every time I get up, I think... God does not need me to do this. He, he could do in you directly exactly what he wants to have happen and <laughs> frankly, do it better than I, you know. Isn't it amazing? He uses these conduits. You know, okay, I'm stealing the point. I'm stealing the point, aren't we? So what, 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 what's the point of service if he doesn't need any of us to do it? Psalm 100 verse 2 and Acts 17 25, how do they go together? Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Acts 17 25, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Well, which is it? Ah, it's both. So God does not need our service. That's the point of Acts 17 25. So his call for us to serve, Psalm 100 verse 2, is a call to participate in the privilege and joy of the ministry of grace. Now look at how this works. 
that flows from him into us and then through us into the lives of others. That's what service is to look like. The ministry of grace that flows into us from God and, and then out of fullness of heart, we share, we minister what God has granted us. It flows from us, uh, through us, into the lives of others. We can take no credit. All that we have is a gift from Him. And He gives us what we have to be used in service to others. Now that statement, I mean, I, it's, you know, I, I wrote it, I'll, I'll stand by it, but it's, it's partial, isn't it? He, he does also gives that for our benefit. I mean, we, be, before I minister this truth to you, oh my, has it impacted my life. So I mean, so the, the, you know, the gifts that God gives to us that we then pass on to others, first, first is to have the impact on us. So, so that we, we out, uh, out of these, these lives that are just impacted by God, then share the, the reality of what we have experienced. So indeed, it does affect us. But it isn't to affect us in isolation. It just is never to do that. It's always affecting us so that we can share the bounty. Because this is God, isn't it? This is God. He loves to share the bounty. Why are we here? Share the bounty. Yes, indeed. So he gives us that privilege of being those who share the bounty. All we have is a gift from him. He gives us what we have to be used in service to others. God is so shareful. If you type this in a computer, it'll be red underlined. I don't care. Uh, my, my wife, Jody tells me, Bruce, that's not a word, shareful. I don't care. It is a great word. It, 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 just, it just says exactly what we need to say. He is so full of sharing. He is so lavish in his sharing. He is shareful. Write it down. It's a new word. <laughs> he is so generous. Generous king indeed. Rather than just doing the work unilaterally. He devises a plan by which he intends that some of his work be done in and through others by calling and equipping and using them. We have absolutely no basis for boasting, either before God or before others. Human pride is utterly shattered. It is devastated when we understand in the depths of our souls the infinite and intrinsic fullness that is God's alone for all eternity. It, is, it not only is not about us, it's not of us or from us or because of us. To God alone be the glory. So my friends, what an amazing God God is who is infinitely full, doesn't need to do this. He, he, goodness, if you, if you say he does, what do you say about God before creation? You, you want us to talk about him as deficient then? Really? I, I tell you, I, I would highly recommend not going that direction. No, he is infinitely full. So his creating is to fill us up with himself. So here's my appeal to you, my friends. If that's God's purpose with your life, then ask yourself this question. Am I seeking to experience what God has created me for? 
Am, am, I, am I putting myself in the place? Am I, am, I, am, am I giving myself to the kinds of activities that fulfill what God has created me for? Namely, to be filled with Him and then as filled with Him, share the bounty with others. So, goodness, how important is this book in your life? Where, where, where do you think God wants to fill us with himself? What, what principally is he going to use to do that? Why do you think the Holy Spirit, who is at work in you, inspired this book? Huh. Spirit and word go together. Where can you hear the word of God preached? Where, where you can be instructed. The word of God taught. Are you there? Are you putting yourself in the places where you can receive what God has for you day by day, moment by moment, trusting, looking, depending, waiting upon Him for what He has? This is what we were made for. May God help us to enter into fullness of human joy, human flourishing, as we realize how radical, how thorough, how unqualified is our dependence upon Him. Amen? Amen? Pray together. Father, thank You. Oh my, thank You. Thank You. <laughs> thank You for such amazing love that though You do not need us, You love us and long for us to experience in finite measure the joy that otherwise is Yours alone. What generosity, what kindness, what lavish goodness. Forgive us, Father, for the many, many times we go elsewhere instead of to you, where we disobey your word rather than obey it. Forgive us for the folly of that and the insult that is to you. And grant us, Lord, hearts that long to know you and follow in your ways, that we might experience all the goodness that you intend for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.